Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter Dalpena, and I know a lot of you are probably very disappointed that the ODI series against Ireland was cancelled, but we've got a guest who will hopefully brighten your spirits with some of his anecdotes from being involved in organizing cricket in Florida, which... In some ways, the cancellation of the Ion series fits very much into the history of cricket at the Broward County Stadium and all the shenanigans that have gone on, both good and bad, over the years. The former mayor of Waterhill, Richard Kaplan, is on the show for the first of a two-part interview. Before we get to all the anecdotes and memories that he has to share about cricket over the last few decades in Waterhill and South Florida in general, I want to remind everybody to please subscribe to the podcast on Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can help support the podcast and make sure it gets produced on an episode-by-episode basis. Also a reminder that the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast, presented by Dream Cricket, is also sponsored by Moosa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Moosa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. We are very honored to welcome the former mayor of Waterhill, Florida, Richard Kaplan. Mayor Kaplan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. You've got your Michigan polo shirt on. For people yes. who are not aware, you are a proud Michigan man. You're from the state. You went to the University of Michigan. So tell us, as we head into the New Year's season with Michigan and the college football playoff, what do you think their chances are of becoming national champions? There is a chance. I will tell you that I've looked at the game. Georgia and Michigan are very comparable uh, uh, football teams. They both have strong defenses. They both have good offenses. It's very similar. So um, I don't know how that game's exactly going to play out, but I'm going to be rooting for Michigan. I was hoping to actually try and see if I can get to the game, but uh, that turned out to be problematic, and I'll be very happy just to be able to watch it. I really was rooting to play Cincinnati, though, in the first round, but uh, that didn't happen. Careful what you wish for. You never know. Cincinnati, they, they yeah. could upset Alabama. You never know. That that is that is why you play the game. You do not assume you play the game because things happen. Be honest. A year ago, when Jim Harbaugh was on the robes, did you want him fired, or did you have faith that he would be able to turn around like he has this year? I didn't want him fired. I thought that last year was just a throwaway year for virtually everyone. They only played six games they didn't play ohio state it was horrible things were just going left and right and they forced him into playing games and honestly the season could have been canceled nobody would have cared that much um it was just a really strange year of course the last two years have been strange for everybody yeah and then you got to look at okay if you get rid of them who are you going to get do we want a repeat of when uh uh, when uh, Lloyd uh, Lloyd Carr was uh, retired, and then they try to get like five different coaches, and they finally, you know, they got one that did not match, and then uh, you know, then we got rid of him, and then Brady Hoke, which he works well at San Diego State University, but he doesn't anywhere else. I don't exactly understand. Worst case scenario, if Harbaugh wins, the only really good coach that I'm aware of is Urban Meyer, and 
I don't necessarily know if that would be a good idea either. So uh, that would have been awfully weird uh, in that situation. Um, you don't want so, somebody who's who's uh, potentially uh, kicking players if they don't score enough touchdowns against Ohio State. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with that whole thing. All I know is there are college coaches, which really are college coaches. And then there's some pros that are really pros. And they can sometimes go back and forth like, uh, Harbaugh could play in both. So he was one of them. But then, and then there was, uh, what's his name? Erickson, I think he's now, uh, is it Dennis Erickson? Or there's someone that's right now playing. There's a couple of them. But then there are some college coaches that just never play well at pro. Saban was one of them. He was a spectacular failure, total failure in the NFL. Total failure. And Meyer is the same thing. They're extraordinarily good college football coaches but they are not good NFL. They don't understand there's a difference. The same thing in basketball. You look at Beeline. Beeline was a great college basketball coach, but as far as a NBA coach, did not understand. It wasn't the same. He just didn't grasp the difference. And that is a problem for a lot of coaches. Coach at Michigan right now of basketball, I'm trying to think of his name, tall guy, Fab Four. Juwan Howard. Yeah, that's it. If he wanted to go NBA, he probably could be a very good NBA coach. However, he really loves being a college coach. And there is a certain, you know, I know it's all a business, but when you're at the pro level, it's nothing but a business. Whereas you're at the college level, there is some joy with it too. And Howard is really finding the joy in being a college coach, especially now that his son's on the team. Sure, what the heck? And uh, but he's having a wonderful time being a coach. So our team this year is not as good as last year. Dropped out of the rankings and stuff. But you know what? Rankings in college basketball mean absolutely nothing. It's getting into the uh, NCAA tournament in uh, March that makes all the difference because you could be the last place team, and if you win the national championship, hey, you're the national championship that champion. That's it. You know that's the big thing. Winning the Big Ten champion is good, but winning the national is better. There's still time for Michigan to turn it around this year. Gonzaga, who looked invincible last year and who looked invincible in the early weeks this year, they they lost to Duke, and then Duke loses a few days later. Then Purdue becomes number one. They lose immediately as number one. So there's been a, a very rapidly turning carousel at the top of the college basketball rankings this year. Basketball, it's not – the teams aren't consistently the same week to week. You could have a, a really good team, but – you know there's so many games you're going to lose during the season i'm trying to think of there was one team many years ago that went undefeated well the last one was indiana indiana was undefeated i thought it was indiana state no no no. indiana bobby knight was the last last team that went undefeated but you've had a couple teams who've made it through the regular season undefeated so gonzaga last year it's an example gonzaga was undefeated once the national title game lost the national championship game a couple years ago I think 2006 or 2007, St. Joe's in Philadelphia had an undefeated regular season. I think they lost in their conference tournament, and then they went to the Elite Eight and lost to Oklahoma State. It's a it's very, very hard to go through now in the modern era, 36, 37 right. games without losing. In football, it's, it's been occurring a lot. Actually, Alabama has been doing it. Uh, well, but 12 but twelve or 13 games in college football is a hell of a lot different than 36 or 37 games in college exactly. basketball. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, you get tired. College basketball, you play like every three days, something like that. 
So sometimes you do back-to-back games if you're in a tournament. You'll play one game one day and play another game the next day if you win or the day after, something like that, depending on the tournament. The semifinals on New Year's Eve, and then if they they win that game against Georgia, they'll be uh, going to the against Alabama. They'll be they'll be going they'll... in Indianapolis, where they won the Big Ten championship not too long ago. I mean, the game against Iowa was really excellent, but very honestly, it's uh, was the Ohio State game, and uh, it's funny. I don't know if you watch uh, if you were able to watch uh, Colbert. But David Allen Greer was on Colbert the other day. And uh, what's interesting about it is that I don't know him, but he was in the class behind me at Michigan. And we were in the same program. And while I can't remember it, we could have been in the same classes. He was showing what, what happens when Michigan wins, and he was going absolutely nuts. He won a Tony and Michigan won the uh, Big Ten championship in the same day or something like that. And you know, that's how you feel. So, and he's, he said it correctly. He says, we could lose every game during the football season, but if we beat Ohio State, we made our season. That's it. You know, yeah, I remember we were there during the 10 um, year war between Shem Beckler and Woody Hayes. That was something to see. Now you're um, digging deep into the rivalry. Oh, oh, no. I mean, I remember I was there at 1973 at the 10 10 tie. We should have won that game. We had another touchdown. They called it back on a clipping, and I was there watching. I said, that's not clipping. That is not clipping. But they called it back, and uh, we should have won that game. And then that game is the reason why Michigan State, until like about a year or two ago, did not get a law school. Did you know that story? You don't know that story. What happened is Michigan was debating. The state of Michigan was debating about giving a law school and opening another law school, public law school, either Michigan State or at, I think it was Eastern University, they were debating it. And Michigan State should have gotten it, except that they did a vote because it was a tie. And originally, if on a tie vote in the Big Ten, Michigan would have gone to the Rose Bowl. And the first vote was 5-5. So we should have gone to the Rose Bowl. But then Michigan State decided, because it beat both Michigan State, Michigan and Ohio State that year, it decided to ask for a uh, revote. And it voted for itself. So we lost on a 5-4-1 vote. So Ohio State got to go to the Rose Bowl. So the University of Michigan legislators decided not to give Michigan State a law school. And they decided not to give it to Eastern either. So no new law school. And uh, until recently, Michigan State just bought Detroit College of Law, which I was accepted to, could have gone to, but then I would have had a Michigan and a Michigan State degree. That would have been something really weird. But I like Michigan State. It's a good school. My sister went to it. My brother went to it. I don't have a problem with it. I told my son he could go to it. He said, are you out of your mind? No. My son went to Michigan. I told him he could go to any school east of the Mississippi except Ohio State. Now we're getting the true sense for anybody who didn't get an appreciation before of the intensity of the rivalry. You've, you've summed it up that, quite well. That, yeah, that, that is very true. And see, people didn't know me until I got involved in cricket that I am, when it comes to sports, a relatively competitive person. They didn't know that till they got me into playing cricket, that I actually can, could play some and was very, try to be competitive on it. So that was a whole thing too, whole story. We'll see if we get to it, whatever. Well, so. Mayor Kaplan, <laughs> you, you talked quite a bit about Michigan, University of Michigan, being from Michigan. Yes. One of the interviews I did with you, 
way back when I think it was one of the first times I met you would have been around 2011 2012 around the time that West Indies came to play against New Zealand in Florida and I did an interview then and one of the the quotes that I look back on and I get a big kick out of is talking about you being from Michigan and being a Jewish guy who moves from Michigan to Florida and gets into cricket and you say in this area to be white and Jewish and playing cricket is not the most common thing you'll find in the world so tell people who are not aware of your story and your background how does a white Jewish guy from Michigan come down to Florida and get involved in cricket and and get on a national cricket magazine oh my cat decided to get <laughs> my wife's over here so there goes Rudy so yeah and I got on to the it was a the American Cricketer Magazine, I was on the cover of the first issue. So that was kind of funny. What happened was this. After I finished law school, I came down to Florida. I had a choice. Do I want to stay? I was in Ohio, actually, at the time at Cleveland State. Could have gone back to Michigan, stayed in Ohio, or moved to Florida because my parents and family, they were somewhat moving there. So I decided to come to Florida because I figured someday I'd retire. Why am I waiting until basically now? To move to Florida, I might as well do it then and enjoy it. Michigan was going through some tough times. I wasn't doing much better. So came down to Florida and uh, eventually bought a place in Lauder Hill. Somehow they got me all upset about the development in the area and cutting down all the trees. And I made a big to-do about it and got them to actually stop cutting the trees down for like 48 hours. And some uh, gentleman from the Sun Sentinel got me on the front page of the local section on an article of what they were doing. And that got me involved in politics to try and I vested into Lauder Hill and I wanted to keep the place nice. And I got involved in Lauder Hill politics and in short order, they wanted me to run for office and almost got me once Then I stepped down. They did get me to finally, I finally decided to run. My mother actually accidentally convinced me. She wanted me to run. She'd finally given up on me, but she got my curiosity up. So I decided I wasn't, I was going to run, but not win just to try and get a bully pulpit and talk about things. And then somehow, well, someone else was arrested the night before the election and I won as a then councilman. And then I was served for 10 years. And then there was an opening for mayor and I decided to run for mayor because I didn't want to serve on a council or a commission with one of those other people as mayor. I figured I'd rather run and serve than, or lose and i'm done with politics but somehow i won so when you first ran for political office in lauder this is in the late 80s and then when you uh, ran and 88 you said 88 is the first time i ran for office 88 and then you ran for mayor the first time and won in 98 98 correct so 98 so now we're now we're into the late 90s okay you become mayor and now what happened the turnpike and with my wife and my son, and all of a sudden I look and I see, you can see this park right along the turnpike at City Hall. And we looked at it going, are they playing cricket? And it looked like it. And then about two weeks later, uh, Irv Kiffin, I think you know Irv, came up to me and says, you know, Mayor, they're, they're playing cricket over at City Hall. I said, gee, that's what I thought they were playing it. Well, they want you to get involved with it a little bit. They want to promote the game. And my, I always saw my job as mayor is to try and do what the people in the city want you to do. And Lauder Hill back then had a sizable, even larger now, but it was a growing African-American and Caribbean-American population, particularly Jamaicans. 
but other groups as well, uh, Trinidadians, Barbados, Virgin Island, a lot of others. And uh, I said, uh, okay. So they put me in touch with uh, some guys and they wanted me to uh, play in a game. They were creating this game called Night Cricket, which I found out at the time, and we're talking about probably about 1999, 2000, the cricket world looked down at anything other than a one day or a test match. That was not the thing to do. But we decided they were starting to do a little night cricket here and there. And we decided to create a night cricket program. So they, it, by the way, when we started, it was 28 overs. Try to get two games in a night. Went down to 24 overs. And eventually we got down to 20 overs. And then they created this name T20. We were doing it before they were even came up with the name. All right. So uh, they got me in a cage and they were uh, bowling the ball to me. And I found that playing cricket or hitting a cricket ball or batting cricket is a combination between baseball, golf, and tennis, which were my three sports. I played softball. The ball plays, hits like a baseball. Of course, the bat's a little like a baseball bat. The way the ball comes in is a lot like tennis, and the swing's a little bit like golf, except it's a moving target as opposed to a stationary target. And my stance was really bad as far as they were concerned, and I'm hitting this ball, and they keep bowling it, and they keep stopping and looking at each other, and these two guys, and they keep scratching, and they keep trying to correct my stance, and I just keep going back to what I was doing, but I kept hitting the ball. And I finally stopped. I said, is everything okay? He says, well, Mayor, we don't understand. Your stance is really very strange, but you keep hitting the ball. So keep doing it. It's okay. <laughs> and then they got me into a game, a night cricket game, and I started hitting the ball. I was paired off with another guy and I hit, thank God. Okay, by the way, thank God we got a break in there because I was sucking air. They didn't tell me about running and hockey equipment. That's the other side of it. And I was not a runner. So I was sucking air and thank God. I hit nine runs. My partner hit uh, 14 runs before I was out or uh, 16 runs. We had 25 runs between the two of us. Then I got out and they had a report and it was a picture of it. It went in the newspaper and I hit a bunch of singles and doubles. Uh, and I really got to love the game. So I kept doing it and we started promoting the game. And we started playing, uh, we created a night cricket league that you know on uh, Friday nights. And I used to play in that actually. And then we started doing specialty games like we did a game against uh, the Council General's Office of Barbados. Uh, you know Jeff Miller, of course. Great story is I hit more runs in that game than Jeff Miller did. Who's a former USA national team player who took a hat trick at one time in the, I think the 80s against Canada in a World Cup yeah. qualifier. And he's got a distinguished career for USA. Yeah, and I did better than him in that game. So he never, I can't live it down. Listen, I, I, I played a game in night cricket against the Jamaican team and against the guy that the previous week had hit a century. And uh, in that game, I was playing slip position and he hit the ball up in the air and I caught it. And he had only scored about 30 runs at that point. And they... <laughs> He was not happy about it. His team was just trying, was, was really uh, crucifying him over that. Because here's this guy catching, you know, like guy, whatever. And uh, so we, we decided not just between, you know, between the play and the game, which I loved and promoting it. 
we tried to go a bit farther with it. You know, and we did quite a bit over the years. And that's how I got onto it because all the promotions and everything and World Cup and everything, some interesting stories there too. And that got me involved with it. And it was kind of weird, but I was doing what they want me to do. And being a competitive guy, I like to play and promote the game. And I didn't know enough that this was something that maybe I shouldn't have done because I just figured, well, what's the worst they're going to do? Throw me out of office? Fine. Now, be honest, Mayor Kaplan, because you're the mayor, when you went out to bat, were they giving you full tosses uh, just to, you know, get in your good books? Okay, I'm going to tell you a story. This is great. So at one time, uh, there's a team, the, I think there was Mir- the Miramar Masters, a lot of former uh, U.S. team and Caribbean uh, players. They asked me to go down to Peru to play in a tournament against the Chilean and the Peruvian national team. Sean, who is the, was then the consul general to Trinidad, he also went. He is now the ambassador in India to Trinidad, last I heard. And so we went down there. And it was a one-day one day, uh, event, one-day uh, 50 overs. And we were playing, and they had me out there, and eventually I went hitting. I was hitting the ball. I had nine runs and that out. We won the game. We won both. We won the tournament, actually, our team against the, their team. And I played okay. I pulled a hamstring, so they had a runner for me, but I was hitting. And after the first game, I hit quite a few runs. They, uh, they came up to me and they said, Mayor, do you know how fast they were throwing the ball at me or how they were bowling? I said, no. They said about 90 miles an hour. And I was hitting 90 mile an hour. Uh, I always get screwed up on the language. So I used my baseball knowledge of fast fastballs. So what they discovered over the years was I can hit a fastball. No problem. A spin, a spin I have a bit of a problem. You throw me a fastball, the faster, the better. And I hit it. And they were kind of shocked by it. And so nobody was giving you any freebies. Nobody was saying, hey, Mayor, I'll g- if I give you this full toss and you hit it for four, I, I want this uh, budget oh, uh, uh, yeah. application approved. They did once in a game give me a uh, – they threw me a spin, and I totally missed the ball on the first one, and they threw me out, and they said, no, 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 we'll give you another shot. That happened once, okay, because I can't do a spin very well. I played in – I don't know, about a dozen, dozen and a half games. Yeah, because I played in that league. That was probably a dozen games per year. So I did that like two or three years, plus a few games in Jamaica and then Peru. I enjoyed it. It was good exercise. Once I got used to running in hockey equipment. You mentioned the hockey equipment. I think that's a fantastic analogy. As somebody who grew up playing ice hockey, I always feel like the equipment I wore, especially the, the pads, the shin guards, and the thigh guards, like you said, they're – Completely identical. Yeah, the helmet. Everything is identical in my mind. The gloves. Again, it's it's not like a baseball glove. The, the glove is is thick padding like you would have in hockey or lacrosse. Right. It is. Um, so you mentioned the hockey analogy. You talk about golf. You know, you swing like a golf uh, club or a tennis racket right. and and baseball. There's so many things. It's a great amalgamation of sports. I I sometimes have made analogies to billiards that in terms of the angles and trying to find open spaces. Yeah. Use yes. the angles on it like you would on a billiards uh, pool table. I looked around wherever I was seeing that. Where was the defense set it up? Set up so I know that. I mean, you didn't have to smack the ball as right. far you know, like in baseball, you could literally just tip the ball off on a small angle off to your left or right because no one was there and pick up a single. I would do that. 
So let me ask you this. What was the most fascinating and what was the strangest thing that you had to adjust to as somebody who was playing cricket for the first time in roughly you would have been in your 40s at this point in your life? To me, the whole story of how I developed with cricket is strange. Because like you said, here is a white Jewish guy from Michigan somehow got involved in cricket, promoted it, and become somewhat, I mean, they put me in the Cricket Hall of Fame. That's something that nobody I ever went to college or high school, well, high school definitely will be able to ever say. You know, that's kind of a unique kind of thing for me to be in, especially because I was playing in the fort. Now, by the way, there is a little um, joke, I would say, that's going on that when I played, uh, they, when they said, they said, when I played, I played outstanding because when I played, I stood out. So what was the, well, let me say, what was the easiest thing? What was the thing that you were most comfortable doing when you first got into cricket? I liked batting. Uh, I liked playing the slip position because in baseball, I played catcher. Well, you have to understand when I played baseball, I started out as a catcher. When my um, knees went, they put me to right field because I had the arm. And when the arm went, they moved me to first base because I could still catch. So slip position, I didn't have to bend down. I had a reaction that was pretty fast one way or the other. So I liked the slip position best, but I didn't always play that way. Now, what was the worst thing for me to ever do in cricket is to pitch. I have absolutely no arm for pitching. So if I try to pitch the ball in a certain direction straight, I it actually would go about three to four feet to the right of it. So I actually had to adjust my standing when I ever tried to about to literally throw it three to four feet to the left of where I'm actually trying to hit to get it where the batter was. <laughs> Otherwise, it'd be wide. And I could not bowl at all. I was horrible at it. They tried to have me do it once, and I had to suffer through six of those. And I said, that's enough of that. I ain't doing that again. Today's episode of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, and now one of the premier venues for the minor league cricket T20 franchise tournament. Located at 5515 McKeever Road in Pearland, five miles off the Bailey Road exit from State Route 288 and a half hour south of downtown Houston, Musa Cricket Stadium includes fully enclosed locker rooms and change rooms plus shower facilities after day's play, as well as outdoor nets for all your training needs. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Moosa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. So we've talked about your introduction to playing cricket and all the nuanced things that were happening with regards to both the general playing of the sport and also the cultural aspect of you, again, not to beat a dead horse, but being a Jewish guy from Michigan, coming in, playing with predominantly Caribbean expats. When did it start to register with you that cricket was more than just a game that could be played by locals in Lauderhill and that there was a much bigger sphere of influence that sport could have within Lauderhill and and spreading Lauderhill's message to the world through cricket? You you want that story. By the way, I'm telling you there's a lot of stories. I told you about that I wrote a book cricket lovely cricket it's not out till next year a lot of these stories are in there there's a lot more in there though uh, one of the things in lauder hill or one of the things cities try to do is is to promote economics uh businesses trying to have an economic economics plan or whatever 
And we decided to get involved in international sister city program, trying to develop international trade and being with such a large population of Caribbean people in the South Florida region, we decided to connect up or twine with a city called Chaguanas Trinidad. They decided that we should fly down to Chaguanas and meet with them and talk to them. And before we left, um, I was told that I'm going to be watching some cricket games. This is as it's developing. Actually, that was my first introduction to having to learn more about cricket is when I got on the plane to go down there. And then all the other stuff playing cricket came after that. It kind of just all fell into each other, into everything. So uh, I got on a, a plane and I pulled off, before I got on the plane, I got off the internet, how to play cricket, because I didn't know the game. And I read it on the plane on the way down, went down there. Uh, it was interesting because they treated me as a VIP and they actually called me off the plane when we landed in Trinidad and they sent me to the VIP room, which nobody else gets to do except VIPs. It was really quite impressive. And we met with the people in Chiguanas and we went to cricket games and we learned all about it. What's interesting is that we went to, that was the West Indies versus India game. And I found that cricket in Trinidad is very much a party with a game going on. They were not there at the beginning. They were outside the stadium partying. Eventually they came into the stadium and they continue party. In fact, there's a section there with the party section. I guess it's all you can eat food and party, party, party. Well, they put me into the skybox with the U.S. ambassador to the West Indies. And we was helping me learn about how to play cricket. And people would come in and out and they interrupt him and they talk to him, whatever. And eventually they leave. And he turned to me at one point and he said, you know, I wish they'd leave us alone so we could just enjoy the game. But uh, we watched the game, whatever, and I learned. And then I learned also while I was there that World Cup was coming to, to the Caribbean. And I also know that there was an organization for the United States called USACA, which at the time was suspended. Why, I don't know, but that uh, they were suspended from operating. Well, they were talking about World Cup and everything, and I do not know the gentleman. I really wish I did. And you have to understand something about me is that I am a very opportunist when it comes to my city and taking advantage of whatever they, I can for the city. And he came up to me and he said, would Lauderhill be interested in bidding on the World Cup games? And I said, wait a minute. We're in the United States. We're not in the West Indies. How can we bid on the games? They said, oh, no, it's allowed. You can bid on the games. Was this Donald Lockerbie by any chance? No, it was not Donald Lockerbie. Donna, I know. It was a, a, a Caribbean-American person in Trinidad. He was in a suit and tie. It was somebody that was somewhat well-connected because he, I was only really involved with well-connected people. He could have been with the government. He could have been with the... WICB, I don't know, West Indies Cricket Board. I don't exactly know, but he asked me and I said, sure, why not? Like I have a clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> so uh, I made a decision right then and there, we were gonna bid on the World Cup games, not having a clue what that involved, which uh, I told my one of my commissioners there, uh, Margaret Bates, 
who was very much a cricket supporter as well. And I told Leslie uh, Johnson, who was there, who then was called Leslie Tropepi. And okay, that's what the mayor wants. Fine. So we did. I went on TV. I told him we were going to. They put me on a TV show or a radio show. I mean, I later came to understand that it was somewhat of a curiosity and a courtesy. Because honestly, we had no cricket stadium. We didn't have a heck of a lot of anything to go on it. And, you know, they also told Grand Caymans and Bermuda and Bahamas they could bid on the game too. So we're all looking to bid on it, though their bids all, I don't know what happened. I don't know if they all even submitted. They all fell through. Bermuda definitely submitted a bid. I, I had talked okay. about this with Don Lockerbie on a previous episode because he was in charge of the World Cup. He was the COO okay. of the 2007 World Cup. And he said Bermuda had a spectacular bid and he felt they were very unlucky to miss out on games. And he talked about USA submitting bids. And like you said, some of these other islands in the Caribbean who were not traditionally considered part of the West Indies, but geographically could have participated in the World Cup if they had the infrastructure that could have supported the event. And they were soliciting bids, but Bermuda USA fell short. Well, well, just to let you know, I was told, by the way, that at the time why we were allowed to bid is because USAC was suspended and the West Indies Cricket Board was actually running cricket in the United States. So we were considered part of them for the time being, which to me was actually years later, I thought was a great idea. Uh, (laughs) I had no problem being part of them. It made a lot of sense. Okay, so we literally put together a proposal now. What people did not realize is that South Florida is the home of major sports. We've had numerous Super Bowls, World Series, uh, Stanley Cup Finals. So we have over 60,000 beds, three major airports, two major seaports. So from a logistical point of view, the only thing we were really missing was a stadium. And at the time, we had just passed a bond issue in the county to build recreational facilities all over the place. And it did, it did include the creation of a, what was then what is now called the Central Regional Park in Lauderhill was designated to be built by that bond issue. So we actually had the money. So we had everything we could put together. So we put together a phenomenal bid. And uh, we went down. I remember we went to St. Lucia for a orientation meeting. We sent a delegation there of about, I think about 11, 12, 13 people. We all showed up in our matching shirts, which I think drove everyone else crazy because nobody else, they just showed up and whatever they were wearing, they were not wearing suits or ties or anything. And we looked like a professional army walking in, sit down, do our job. I mean, we were whatever. They had like two, one, two, three people. We had over about a dozen, about a dozen people there. We were taking it very seriously, and uh, we submitted our bid. Um, we did not get it, which, in a sense, actually, hindsight being twenty twenty, was probably good for us at the time. We tried to find out why we didn't get the bid, and the reason they told us was because they were not. It was not acceptable for our security arrangements, and which kind of really was strange to us. Supposedly, our problem was getting players in and out in security, which we had completely resolved, but that's why we got rejected. Strangely enough, the same people that were doing security for our event actually were hired by the country's 
that did get the bids to do the exact same security, but it wasn't good enough in the United States. Later on, I was told that no matter what, the United States was not going to get games. They just decided this was a West Indies event and it was going to be exclusively and they did not want any distractions. That's why we didn't get a game. And I don't know, maybe that's why Bermuda didn't get a game either. But uh, turned out that that particular game, a lot of the best teams lost out early and therefore they didn't get quite the amount of tourism they expected out of it. And so there were some issues financially with it at the end, but I think they all came out okay. You said you felt that the not getting the bid in a sense was a blessing in disguise or, or was something that worked out better in the end. Why do you feel that way? Because if the event had not been successful, we could have lost a lot of money and that would have been a bit of a problem. It also gave us more time to eventually build the stadium, which the cricket stadium, which we did. Uh, it has 5,000 permanent seats. It has a grassy bank area. So we, we typically have games between 12 and 15,000, but actually it was designed so you can bring in skybox and stands and stuff that it actually can be configured for between 25 and 30,000 people temporarily if we needed to. I mean, permanently if you really wanted to, but we were intending for the World Cup to bring in temporary facilities and bump it up to 25,000 plus, but we've never done it. So, but it's a great facility. Issues with that with building on that and stuff, but uh, we've been told, uh, we've had players play on the field. They said, it's superior to a lot of places they played around the world. They actually like the facility. It isn't as much as we were hoping. There were some problems with lighting and some other issues that shrunk the, uh, the uh, diameter down a little bit. It was supposed to be wider, but they wanted to save some money. And so they did a few things, which I only found it after the fact, but uh, they got it built and it's a very, it, it plays very well now. They do like playing there. Well, I find it fascinating when I've traveled around the Caribbean and players who have come in for things like the CPL have played all their cricket in the West Indies and hearing them say how highly they regard the facility in Lauder Hill at the time when I would hear them say these things, I just thought, oh, they're, they're just saying it because they're trying to pump up, you know, they're trying to build good PR for the facility and good PR for the league. So they're never going to say a bad thing about Waterhill of being guests and they want to help promote cricket in Florida and cricket in the USA. So of course they're being gracious guests. But then in the last couple of years that I have traveled around parts of the Caribbean for various events, I am quite honestly stunned at some of the facilities that I have seen, which in the past were considered world-class or very famous facilities, whether that's in Trinidad or in Antigua recently, where USA participated in the T20 World Cup qualifier, going to the old Antigua Recreation Ground. Now there's a lot of history and nostalgia, and Brian Lara scoring his world record 400 and doing amazing feats and the incredible memories that are associated with some of these facilities. But to be perfectly honest, they're not things that you would jump at in terms of practice facilities, fan amenities, just general logistical things that you take for granted in a modern facility. And then it starts to make sense why a lot of the players, especially from the West Indies region, think so highly of the facility in Lauderhill because it is better than a lot of the facilities that you would see in other parts of the world. So the fact when it did open in 2008, and then you did have the first 
international matches with Sri Lanka and New Zealand in 2010, when these things started to happen and you started to get momentum and more attention and awareness and really showcase the facility to the world, what were the things to you that gave you the most optimism in terms of what the facility could be a place that could showcase cricket, not just in Lauderhill, but showcase cricket in America to the world. Well, what's interesting is when the facility first opened, there were the first couple of tournaments, uh, games, some problems with the pitch. It took a couple of years to get that pitch right because the soil in Florida isn't the best one for it. They had to bring in some soil from Georgia and they had to work with the line. It took a couple of years to get that right. What was interesting about it was, let's say that first game between Sri Lanka and uh, West Indies or New Zealand. No, it was New Zealand. It was May. This was May, yeah. for people who don't remember, this is May 2010. So it was just after the T20 World Cup that the West Indies hosted. They were looking to get teams who were, before flying back home, Right. They were trying to find a couple of teams that would add a stopover to Florida to play before going back. And so Sri Lanka and New Zealand right. agreed, and they came to Florida just a few weeks after the end of the World Cup, which England won. England won that T20 World Cup in 2010. Sri Lanka right. and New Zealand came out, and there was a lot of excitement in the American cricket community for that. So what, what do you remember about that event from your perspective as mayor? Well, ESPN actually covered it. They normally this wasn't ESPN, but this one was ESPN. I remember that. And they'd set up all of the cameras and everything. They told me that somewhere over 200 million people were watching that game. That's a lot of people to be watching the game. And I was seeing, I was so thrilled because the intent of the cricket was to do international development. And here is an international platform that we are promoting Lauder Hill. Now, some people confuse us with Fort Lauderdale, but we're not the we're not Fort Lauderdale. We're Lauderdale. Well, I, I was one of those people because I'll never forget. It. There was a press conference, one of the early press conferences. I asked a question. I forget if it was to you specifically or to somebody else. And you took the microphone. And you answered, "We're not in Fort Lauderdale. We're in Lauderdale." You set me straight. Just to let you know, after all the games, I actually ran against. I ran up, to, ran into people from India that had never heard of Fort Lauderdale, but had heard of Lauder Hill because of the cricket. They had watched some cricket from Lauder Hill, Florida. And I remember whenever they showed a picture of the stadium, they would say Lauder Hill, Florida on the bottom in the broadcast. And went, oh, Lauder Hill, Florida, there it is. So it was something that was really in line to what we wanted to do and to promote our city. And so we had an incredible opportunity. It just built onto that. And then we had the next game, West Indies, New Zealand. Uh, then we ran into some problems because of USACA, which I don't necessarily know I want to get into right now. Uh, and then they, the there's of, always a good nugget in a USACA yeah, story it, to share. Oh, okay. I'll tell you this too. This is honest. This is in the book. This is one of the stories. We are about four days out from the New Zealand West Indies game to be played. Teams have already arrived. Everyone's setting everything up. Everything's going really well. Uh, and so you understand, my job in this is promotion, support. People ask me a question. I say, sure, go ahead, do it. I mean, like, I don't know if I have the authority or whatever, but sometimes I just did. 
but there was an incredible team of people that were really running the show. And my best, my, the best thing I could do was to support them whenever they needed help. So it wasn't like I put together this event. I supported this event and I did whatever they asked me to do. And they said, that's all they really needed was someone that would support them and not try to fight them or anything. And I never fought them on anything. Leslie was one of them. Uh, Lance Gibbs was one of them, Jeff Miller, a whole bunch of people. So um, I get a phone call at home at night about four days before the event from um, Dainty. You know who Dainty is, don't you? I think we all know Gladstone Dainty, don't we? Mayor Kaplan, the former USACA president. Up until a couple of years later, I had a relatively good working relationship with him. And he called me and he said to me, said, Mayor, and by the way, so I can give you a little backstory. For a game to be played, USACA, who got its authority back, had to sanction the game. The ICC would not override them. So I get a call from him and he says, Mayor. I said, oh, hi, how you doing? And he says, well, we have a problem. I said, what's the problem? Everything seems like it's going well. What's this? We have some problems and you know, we, USACA has not sanctioned the games yet, okay? Remember, they're already teams have already arrived. Everyone's setting up a lot of money. Tickets have been sold. Everything's going forward, and I'm going, okay, fortunately, I don't go into panic mode. I go into um, riot act mode. So I said, well, I don't know exactly what the problems are, but you've got all this stuff happening, and you better make sure whatever the problem is that you're having, that it gets fixed immediately. Otherwise, a lot of people, including the ICC, is going to be extraordinarily upset. And I don't know if you want to deal with those kind of problems. Well, by noon the next day, the problem seemed to have gone away. I'm not exactly sure what it was, and I'm not going to speculate about it. I have a good suspicion from my years involvement, probably what it is, but, but I am not going to speculate on what it was. But the games took place. Good. Well, unbeknownst to me, that was the last of the games for several years because USACA refused to sanction future games for quite a while. There was essentially a Pakistan series in either 2013 or 2014 that Pakistan was in line to visit Florida as part of a Palestinian. And a lot of people forget that one of the reasons why there was such a big gap between 2012 when the West Indies played New Zealand and 2016, when the West Indies played India was because there were a number of series that were proposed that for some reason or another backroom politics derailed and Pakistan was one of the teams that was supposed to visit and it never happened. They were all set. They were, it was a done deal. It was completely a done deal. That game was supposed to be played. Yusaka just said, we're not sanctioning it killed it off. We went to the ICC. They couldn't do anything. We traveled down and met with the West Indies Cricket Board. And we were talking about future games and everything. And then it got to a point and they said, this is easy. We, we had it all worked out. Games, everything. A group of us was down there in the West Indies Cricket Board. The president then said, the only problem is you suck it won't sanction the games. Can you do anything? And we're saying there, no. We don't have any authority. Maybe you can with the ICC. And they couldn't do it. What 
did happen later on is a couple years later, the group of people that, you know, I told you I'm in the Cricket Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And the Cricket Hall of Fame decided to induct me. And that's in Hartford, Connecticut, of all places. Uh, and it turned out that I could attend because we owned a second home in Vermont. And there is a train that goes from Hartford to where we have a second home in Vermont. So it all worked out well. So I went up to Hartford to accept him. Of course, I had to give, you know, give a speech. And I gave them a pseudo riot speech, which was, we had this thing, we had these games, we have this multi-million dollar stadium, and it sits there empty for cricket because USACA won't sanction it. And uh, I'll tell you that the county who owns the stadium is saying, we can't let this asset go unused. So they were now starting to examine using it for other purposes like soccer and football, which they can, but ultimately they could literally baseball, but it may not at some point either be acceptable or usable in any way for cricket. They may lose the cricket thing out of it. And I told them, you know, do something. I can't do anything more. I'm trying to. That seemed to resonate with people at that uh, induction ceremony. Over time, things started happening. And then the ICC started a whole investigation. They suspended USACA again. They put together another group. And all of a sudden, things started happening. In fact, it was so happening so quickly, we were so thrilled. I actually talked to the people of the ICC and said, you know what? As far as I'm concerned, let the ICC continue this method on. We don't need a sanctioning organization. We want the ICC to be our sanctioning organization or the subgroup that they created. And you oversee the whole thing, which they had no interest in doing. So uh, eventually, they did create, I think it's USA Cricket, and things are happening. And there's a funny story about because when they ICC created it, some people with USACA filed a lawsuit against me personally, against an employee of the county and someone else. The lawsuit was they filed in Broward County. The lawsuit made absolutely no sense. The people he they sued had actually no authority to stop the games. They asked for me an order, the judge that I should stop the game. I had no such authority to stop a game. The employee of the county who runs the facility had no authority to stop the games. Well, these and, are the CPL games from memory. These were the, the Caribbean Premier League games, I think, in 2016. Yeah. yeah, so so for people who don't remember this incident at the time, USACA had already been suspended. This is in the summer of 2016. USACA had been suspended by the ICC. Their sanctioning authority to be able to oversee matches had been stripped by the ICC as part of their suspension. And who flies in trying to file a lawsuit on behalf of USACA is the notorious Kenwin Williams. Right. Kenwin Williams, who was the executive secretary, who many people may remember for a variety of reasons. But Kenwin Williams files a lawsuit and sends a cease and desist letter to yourself and to other county officials. The bizarre thing about this, Kenwin Williams filed the lawsuit claiming to do it on behalf of USACA, and yet there were attorneys representing USACA for McGuire Woods was the law firm, told Kenwin Williams in an email responding, you have no authority to bring this lawsuit or other legal action in the name of USACA or any of its region or members. So that showed the chaos and the dysfunction within USACA, that somebody who was 
ostensibly a board member or a former employee for USACA was trying to file legal action in USACA's name. And yet there are even people within USACA who itself was suspended at the time and had no authority anyway with regards to the ICC and the ICC had stripped their, their authority. But this is like a Hail Mary, both by Kenwin Williams to try and show that he still had some weight he could he could throw his weight around. And also by USACA trying to throw a Hail Mary to, to get back in, into the good books of the ICC to say, we don't want to have anything to do with this lawsuit. It wasn't us. Please don't blame us for this. And they dragged you into it. And they were trying to get the CPL games stopped a month or so away in the summer of 2016. And then finally, the case was thrown out and the CPL games went ahead uh, without any we, issue. We had a great laugh over the whole thing. I had to give the case over to our city attorney, Earl Hall. I was laughing about this thing because I'm also a lawyer. So, of course, when I got it, I read it. And I got to tell you, it is, if you knew what was going on and who does what and how things get done, I mean, it was hilarious. I'm going, this is the most dysfunctional thing I ever saw. So part of the lawsuit that was filed, this was, again, Kenwin Williams was filing the lawsuit. He felt on behalf of USACA. One of the other people who was named in the litigation was Duncan Finch. Duncan Finch, who people in Lauderhill would know, he was a longtime parks manager at the Broward County Stadium. So he was basically the go-to guy in terms of- He's an employee. When, but he was but he was an employee, but he was the go-to guy. He was the, the guy who basically ran a lot of the logistics behind the scenes yes. at the stadium. And he was a longtime county employee. And so he was named in the lawsuit and they named him and they notified him. And Kenwin, in part of the legal action, put to Duncan Finch that- having this event was going to be in violation of the sanctioning policy of USA cricket. And that Kenwin put in order to avoid unnecessary litigation, he reached out in an attempt to have an amicable rapids resolution to this dispute, quote, quote. And this was one of the the lines that I think you'll get a laugh at. A lot of people get a laugh at that. Kenwin Williams wrote to Patrice Eichen in the County attorney's office saying we believe that we will suffer irreparable harm as a course of these cricket matches happening. <laughs> I don't know what harm. The only harm they could ever have is I wouldn't get my money, but money is an easy resolution to any kind of lawsuit. I mean, I'd love to have an official response on exactly why they were trying to stop cricket games. What their function is is to promote cricket in the United States and internationally, and why their entire purpose was to stop us, which was the one thing they could do temporarily. They stopped what, for four years, three, four years. They literally. Oh, when USAC was suspended, they were suspended and expelled in 2015, expelled in Ultimate. 2017, and USA Cricket came back in 2018. But again, the, I, the further I'm reading this, the further I'm, I'm laughing. One of the other things that was in the lawsuit document that Kenwin Williams filed. Quote, plaintiffs will also lose the credibility to conduct business with other third parties if they can cut out the sanctioning procedures of USACA, thereby causing irreparable injury and loss of substantial revenue to the plaintiffs. It, 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 it would what? It would hurt the reputation? <laughs> credibility. Credibility and <laughs> reputation. And they, then they, defendants, they, defendants they are no holding a sporting event. For entertainment purposes, for a, quote, small demographic of fans, the events, if enjoined, will not disturb the public interest. The members of USACA, as well as the members in the Southeast region, will be more disturbed if defendants are not enjoined. 
that is totally the opposite of the truth. And the people in South Florida were clamoring for these games. They couldn't fly down to see games in the West Indies. We had what? That game was like 15,000 people were in the stands or were there. Well, the CPL games had 10,000. They put the capacity at 10,000 for the CPL games. And then a couple weeks later, when Indian West Indies came, those games were 15,000 capacity. 15,000, yes. So seemed to do pretty good. It doesn't seem to be irreparable harm. In fact, it did a lot of good. Okay, now correct me. I want to remember that game between the West Indies and India. Was that? No, no, no. When, when, when was that game? That was, that was in August 2019, or sorry, August 2016. There was the games in 2016 and 2019, but the first set of West Indies Indy games were 2016. That was the game, the first game. The second game is a separate story, but the first game is the game where they set a whole bunch of records, T20 records for the most runs scored. How many runs was that game? Do you have that information? It's you know, you said, it set a bunch of records. You had... Two players score centuries in the game. So Evan Lewis scored a century for the West Indies. Evan Lewis scored 100 off of 49 balls. West Indies scored 245 for six. And then KL Rahul scored 110 not out for India. And the game went down to the wire. And Dwayne Bravo bowled the final over to Rahul and MS Stoney. And I think they needed two to win off the final ball. And Doney was caught at short third man off the final ball ball by Dwayne Bravo and West Indies one by run one run. So it was 245 plays 244 goes down to the final ball. West Indies win by one run. And one of the things I remember that that game ostensibly West Indies was quote, quote, the home team being the tour was for India was going through the West Indies in Florida. And yet the stadium was 95% India fans. So the quote, quote, home team wins off the final ball by one run. And you could almost hear a pin drop in the stadium. (laughs) It was okay. I got to tell you, that is probably the most amazing cricket game I have ever seen in my life. Anyone who saw it or anyone who was there, that was just, that was everything cricket is supposed to be. That's the way you want cricket. We have, we're first, second, third, fourth in so many categories where it says Lauderhill, Florida, that stadium. Nobody could complain ever about that pitch at that point. That pitch was amazing. The way the game was going was a phenomenal. And we could see this game developing as it went along. Now, the game the next day was supposed to be played. This is the second story. What happened was is that there was a, it was being broadcasted back to India, which was a big thing, of course. But there was a transmission problem. So they delayed the game for, I think, over two hours. It was, I think it was like closer to an hour. It was, it was roughly an hour. And the problem was, is for whatever reason, they like to play games in Florida summers, which we are notoriously bad because two, three in the afternoons, the rains come in. You cannot play rain. You can play, you can't play cricket or baseball in the rain. They do not allow for it, which I understand. So I'm sitting there and I started sweating going, I told people there, we get rains in the afternoon and it looks like today we might. You want to get this game going. You don't want to delay, but no, they delayed it. They finally solved the problem. They started the game. One side got up. I forgot which side got up. And the other side got up and started playing and it started pouring very close to when the game would have been official. So the whole thing got tossed. If they had started the game as required, 
they would have got that game in. That was a huge furor and uh, major oh, yeah. debacle that came up afterwards. And that wasn't really a Lauderhill fault. It was the faults of the magic organizers because they were so determined to make sure the game was broadcast back to Indian because there was that broadcast transmission failure. They absolutely refused to bowl a ball until the audience in India could watch it because it's prime time in India, 7 8 o'clock at night in India. And they said, no, match isn't happening until we get the TV issue sorted. And then it came back to bite them big time because I think it was in the second or third over of India's chase is when the, the rain came down. And unfortunately, one of the issues with the facility at the time, it's, it's since improved, but the drainage was poor and they didn't have a super sopper to be able to drain the outfield. So all it took was 10 or 15 minutes of rain. The downpour was, was not very long. And what it frustrated a lot of fans who were at the facility, especially the ones who had come for the first time as India fans, was that it had only rained for 15 minutes, 20 minutes tops. The sun right. comes out, gorgeous sunshine again. It's a typical July, August, September, South Florida rainstorm that comes and goes, yeah. right? And then everybody's expecting play to begin, but there were a few issues kind of on the edge of the 30-yard circle where the drainage was notoriously problematic and they didn't hey. have a super sopper to be able to drain the field since they ha now have a super sopper in Florida and the drainage is much, much more improved because of that. You, you can have a uh, an hour, hour and a half rainstorm and you get the super sopper out, soaks up the water and you can get back out and play after an hour, 90 minutes and it's no longer an issue. But on that day, there was so much confusion from a lot of fans who were wondering what's going on here. It rained for not more than 15, 20 minutes. Why are they calling the game off? Cause they didn't have a super sopper to be able to help drain the field. Yeah, and it all know. went back to the transmission failure. Like you said, if they had just started playing the game, they would have gotten the game in. And so many fans were, especially the ones in the ground were incredibly frustrated because the other thing that happened, it wasn't really communicated well to the fans at all in the stadium. There, there was no announcements made. So people were finding out, watching at home on the TV broadcast. And the only way people in the stadium found out that the game was canceled and there was no result was, was by looking on their phones. If they were following the game on the phone and were getting oh, a live yeah. score on the phone, they would, they would found out. But otherwise the rest they of the people who were in the stadium me. were left in the dark. They didn't know what the hell was going on. And all of a sudden they bring the presentation stage out. What the hell is it? Why is the presentation stage coming out? Why aren't we getting the game back underway? There was a lot of confusion around that. And it was all tied all right. to, the TV broadcast and the logistics, which was such a shame. It was a shame. I mean, I did say, suggest to him, I said, listen, you can either cut in and stay live or you can do a, a delayed broadcast. But no, that's what they had. And they had their cricket board uh, people were all there. And that was the problem. But thank God they had the game before because that was the best game ever. I don't know that that would be I don't know other games and how good but that was as good a game it, it, you can't get any better and we were we were overjoyed with the whole situation so Mayor Kaplan has shared all the successes and sometimes failures and obstacles that the Broward County Stadium in Waterhill has experienced over the years with successful matches being staged, including Sri Lanka, New Zealand, and India and the West Indies, but also the failure of matches involving Pakistan to get approval and the obstacles that kept that from happening 
We'll have plenty more anecdotes and stories from Mayor Kaplan in part two of this interview on the next episode of the podcast. So be sure to tune in next week for that. In the meantime, I want to encourage everybody to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube. You can get the latest episodes of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast whenever they launch. Or you can get it in audio format on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor FM, and plenty of other outlets. Until the new year... And I know I'm looking forward to bringing you even better content in 2022. And I hope you'll come along for the ride next year as well. Until 2022, I'm Peter Delapena, reminding everybody, God bless America and God bless American cricket.